I'm Corey Fram, otherwise known as Husband of Drenay. That seems to be my fame. Uh, we're going to look at Joshua 24 this morning, but I've got to tell you, did you guys see this? If you, if you didn't, grab one of these, uh, because it's got really useful information inside on how to serve here at Calvary. Some good stuff. But this quote, oh my goodness, I've never seen this before. This is amazing. So, so let me read this to you. Serve God with all your might while the candle is burning, and then when it goes out for a season, you will have less to regret. That's beautiful. As a matter of fact, that might show up somewhere in my house. I like it. We're going to look at Joshua chapter 24 this morning. And uh, I, I have the privilege of actually bringing, bringing to a culmination this entire study through the book of Joshua. And this chapter is just fantastic, as you would imagine, from the word of God. So let's pray. Uh, let's pray that we would gain insight in God, into what God would have us to know from this this morning. And then we'll jump into it. Bow with me. Look, I thank you for your word. Thank you for being a God who cares enough to give us your instructions in our own language in a way that we can read and understand all that you have done in this world for your glory. And Lord, I pray that this morning you would give me words to rightly attribute all praise and honor and glory to you. As we open this passage, Lord, I just pray that the words would be clear and understood so that you might be magnified. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we can open up our Bibles to Joshua chapter 24 this morning, but I am going I'm to I'm start with just an overview. Joshua is known for his courage, right? Uh, when we think about Joshua, we think about courage, and his courage specifically to act faithfully. So I thought it'd be helpful to, to begin with a reminder of what courage is. Now, some great anonymous Facebook philosopher had this, this definition of courage. It says, courage is knowing it might hurt and doing it anyway. Stupidity is the same, and that's why life is hard. Um, by dictionary, courage is the ability to do something that frightens one or strength in the face of pain or grief. I want to talk this morning about not just Joshua's courage, but specifically the source of his courage. And there's direct application for us from this, from this passage this morning, because I don't think wise courage is simply some emotional premise that, that, that I that I feel courageous, therefore I'm going to act boldly and against all reason. There's a lot in this passage that will help us to understand how to have courage, because you may have come here today fearful, anxious, discouraged. Any number of emotions might be ruling your, your heart right now. And I can imagine those are the same emotions that w- Joshua would have been battling in the context of all the things that we've seen carry out throughout this book. But we're getting to the end of his life, and he's got some wisdom for us. And so I want to I want to uncover that this morning. Before we do that, let's uh, let's look at the beginning. I'm going to actually take us back to Joshua chapter one. So keep your finger in Joshua 24, and go back to Joshua chapter one, because I always like to start with the end in mind, and 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 it seems like Joshua had that insight to do so back in the beginning. Joshua had courage in the way that God designed because he remembered the scriptures. And what does the book of Joshua tell us? Well, it tells us that in spite of of Adam's rejection and disobedience, God promised to make a way. Uh, It tells us that Abraham was an idol worshiper, and yet God used him effectively, called him out of that 
for a purpose. And the reality is that scriptures tell us that God will execute his plan no matter what. And we see that example also in the life of Joseph in so many different ways. We hear about all those things in scripture. We know those stories. But as we reflect back to Joshua chapter 1, take a look at verses 7 through 9, because there's a reason I bring this up before we get into Joshua 24 this morning. If you are feeling weak or fearful or any of those things, I want to remind us how God connects together. Be strong and courageous and remember my word. Okay? Joshua chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then I will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? He repeats it. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's what the Bible tells us. That's that's what God was specifically instructing to Joshua. And praise God, he actually gave us those words. We can read that and we can understand that there's an inextricable link between be strong and courageous and remember my word. Do you see that link? I don't know if you've ever thought of that before, but this is a real and practical application. When we read scripture, let me invert that. When I am fearful, when I am lacking courage, practically, what can I do? Open up the Bible and read. And when I read about what God has done, I'm reminded I serve an all-powerful, sovereign God who is working out his glory. And I can be a part of that. But as we go through this passage, we're going to understand the connections here, the point of application that Joshua specifically obeyed. Because he's commanded in this passage to act faithfully by reading the law of Moses, by knowing the law of Moses, and doing what the law of Moses prescribes. So look at that passage again. Make sure you see the connection there. It says the book of the law. The book of the law, what is that? Just just think that through. The book of the law, we would consider that the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Old Testament. Just be very clear, that's the Bible that Joshua would have available to him at the time. So, So let's put that in context. When we talk about the law of Moses or the book of the law, we're referring to the early part of the Old Testament. That's what Joshua could read. That's what Joshua could review. The connection here is, look at verse 8. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. So that, so that, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. In other words, the things that are written in the book are the things that God would call us to do. That's how we act in his world. So when we look at the Old Testament, we look at the scriptures, it helps to inform how we should act in God's world. For Joshua, I would say that he sets the example for us because he is the one who sets the example of of our modern application. If you're weak and fearful, open up your Bible and read the historical narrative to be reminded that God not only created the world for his glory, he created us and knows even, if we look at the Old Testament law, it's a struggle sometimes. If you've been here on Sunday nights, we're reading through the book of Deuteronomy. Do you realize that God knew in advance just how sinful we would be? 
just how twisted we would be, how distorted we would be. God knew that. And his law is a response to that. He knows how we would operate. He knew our pension for sin, and he gave us the law to show us how badly we need him. It shows us our need for his way. It also shows us his promises. He promised that he would bless his people. If you remember the Abrahamic covenant, anybody who's been through Mr. Fay and I's Sunday school class, you'll remember the Abrahamic covenant had three components, land, seed, blessing, right? You see that God actually made the promise and followed through, and that's what the book of Joshua is telling us. They've just entered the land. God promised it. Through the generations, he faithfully fulfilled his promise. They're now in the land. They've received that blessing. Those are the things that we see in the word of God. God fulfills his promises to his people even even when they don't deserve it. It's a really important posture for us. Just understand, these are blessings that, that come from God. And he fulfills his promises whether we deserve them or not. God extends grace to his people. And he reminds us that he will give us what is best for his glory and our good. And so I have a really brief outline for today. Nick, if you wouldn't mind sharing that up. Just three simple points, okay? First of all, as we go through the passage of Joshua 24, and you can flip over there now. We're going to go into that core passage. I want to talk about a few things, key things that this passage shows us. Number one, God's sovereign will is a comfort to us, his people, because his way is best. God's sovereign will is a comfort to his people because his way is best. Secondly, the Christian desires that God's will be done here on earth, and that presents us with decisions. Joshua 24, very much about a choice. The Christian desires that God's will be done here on earth, and that presents us with decisions. And thirdly, we are built for worship by design, but we must actively choose to worship God. Operative word there is actively. So as we begin reading the main passage for today, let's start with the idea that God's sovereign will is a comfort to his people because his way is best. Let's, let's read the passage together, beginning in Joshua 24. I'm going to break it apart. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. There's a fair amount to cover here, but follow along with me if you would. Joshua chapter 24, verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. 
Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Bear, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, two kings of Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. I'd like us to look at that passage. First of all, just pull out the comparatives between the eyes and the you's. Look at the number of times that God says, I did, I did, I did, I did. That's a sovereign God acting. The sovereign God acting on behalf of his own glory. And if we think about how it is that he is achieving his glory in this situation, there's also a comparative. You, you, you. But notice what the you contains toward the end of that passage in verses 12 and 13. He finishes by saying, I sent the hornet before you, but then I gave you a land which you had not labored, cities you had not built, and you dwell in them. That's your part. You dwell in them. You go live in those cities. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and the olive orchards that you did not plant. This is a sovereign God working out his will and his glory. I mean, think about it. Go back to the beginning. Abraham's father was an idol worshiper. That's where we start from. That's where we start from. Abraham's father was an idol worshiper. So this is the culture that Abraham grew up in. If you were to look at this just purely from from a human logic standpoint, you you would look at Abraham and say, wow, that upbringing. What are the chances that he's actually going to be the one who would achieve such great glory for God, the father of the faith? How would that actually happen? How, How humanly difficult is it to be raised in an idolatrous, worldly culture and then learn to worship God in his way? And aside from that... Later in life, we know Abraham was all too willing uh, to violate his marriage covenant with Sarah, with Hagar. He was also willing to lie repeatedly when he was fearing for his own life and let his wife be taken into another man's harem. Okay, so this is the Abraham that we know. And we have to be able to reconcile the human Abraham with the man that God has actually endowed for a purpose. And so we see... In this short paragraph, God lays out his plan for for going from idol worshipers to his own people carrying out his plan for his glory. And that's the beauty of opening up the scripture and reading and looking at this historical narrative and understanding this is what God actually did. This is how God works. He takes someone who is otherwise useless to the glory of God, right? An idol worshiper, somebody who has a penchant for sin. And he uses them sovereignly to achieve the things that he wants to achieve. That's what I mean by God's will. What are the things that God wants to achieve for his glory? That's what I'm referring to as God's will. And as God's doing all of this, he's carrying this out over generations and generations and generations. And one of the things that I love about this, this is the culmination of a promise made way back in Genesis. They're now in the land. They possess the land. There are so many descendants from Abraham, and yet Abraham saw that was impossible, right? You remember that temptation. He and Sarah, they hear this promise. Sarah laughs, like, really, I'm going to have children? I'm going to have children that, that I can't even count? Come on. There's no way. And yet God found a way. God made a way for this to carry out for his glory. And so... You can't miss an important aspect of this that 
God was never caught off guard throughout all of this. In other words, it's not as though God started laying out and, and okay, so here's my plan A, but if that doesn't work out, I'm going to go with a plan B. When we talk about God's sovereign will, it's not a will that is, is subject or passive to circumstances. In, in other words, you think about God. Okay, God, uh, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, knows all things, is everywhere, knows how this is going to work out before it works out. And he's not just passively saying, okay, well, I know that's going to happen, but then I'm, I'll engage here. There is no plan B for God. There's a plan that God has, has decreed as his will. And we can know that. We can know that. What kind of a God is that that would actually tell us what his will is? This is what I want you to do. He gives us those instructions. What a beautiful picture that is. And so we can observe those instructions. We can actually open up the scriptures and read God's plan for us. And when you think about the sovereign work of God throughout the Old Testament, my favorite example of this, absolute favorite, hands down, is the life of Joseph. You know the life of Joseph, right? This is totally pedantic life. Okay, so, so you're a favored son, and then you're a slave. And then you're finally out of slavery, and you're doing okay, but then you get thrown in jail. But then God takes you out of jail to make you the second most powerful in the land, right? Responsive to the most powerful world leader at the time. And what does God say about that? Well, if you fast forward to the New Testament, which we actually have, we can read and we can understand God's intent for the Old Testament by reading the New Testament. And we do that. We see in Romans 9, 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Is that not a beautiful picture? Now, who was this Pharaoh? This is the Pharaoh who was oppressing the Jews, right? The Israelites. You remember what happened? Make more bricks, no straw. That's, that's the kind of oppressive Pharaoh that we're talking about. And yet, and yet God, God actually promoted the wealth and power of the first Pharaoh in Joseph's lifetime to make Egypt the world's superpower and then use the, the subsequent Pharaoh to demonstrate his power. None of that was an alternate plan. None of that was, it was different than what God intended. God actually knew what was going to happen, and he was orchestrating all of those events. So if you're, if you're Joseph, which Joseph do you want to be? Do you want to be the final Joseph who actually can look back and say, okay, this is what God was trying to do this whole time. Wow, that's great. But, but what about where we are? We're the Joseph in the middle. We're up, we're down, we're all over the place. And it's really hard to discern. What is God doing here? And I, I so often say this, and, and, and I mean this in the, in the best and, and most submissive way, but God, I think there's a better way. Like, why, why this way? Why this way? Why do you have to do it this way? Isn't there a way that's, that's just easier? Isn't there a way that makes me look better? Isn't there a way that makes me feel better? And every single time the answer comes back, his way is best, his way is best, his way is best. And, and if you want to talk one-on-one, I'll give you countless examples that I can observe from my short 51 years on, on this earth. But, but God's sovereign will is a comfort to his people because his way is best. Be sure of that. And the way to be sure of that is open up the Bible and read it. So thus far, the book of Joshua shows us how God supernaturally worked to give the land to the Israelites as he promised generations before. And, and not by the military superpower of the great works of Israel, but by, by God's sovereign hand. And so God's sovereign will is a comfort to his people because his way is best. So now we're going to jump, come to, to verse 14 and Joshua's choice, the great choice of Joshua, twenty-four, fifteen. 
The second point that I was making today is that the Christian desires that God, God's will be done here on earth, and that presents us with decisions, choices, decisions. Um, lots, of, lots of great discussion around the idea of, of the daily decisions that a human being is required to make, right? How many of those are active? How many of those are passive? I'm, I'm really today talking about active decision-making. We're going to have choices. And Joshua presents a great choice here. And as we look at this, we can be tempted to think that it's a simple choice. Let's let's read the passage. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. I'm going to read, I'll read 14 through 20 together here. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father's whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It is, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us all, us in all the way that we went. And among all the peoples through whom we passed, and the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, also, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Verse 19, but Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you. After having done you good. There's a passage that actually tells us the future. Uh, It's just over in Judges chapter 2. If you want to turn there, feel free. Judges 2, verse 6 through 10. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years, and they buried him within the boundaries of inheritance in timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered with their fathers. And there arose, get this, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, or the work that he had done for Israel. Do you see that great disconnect? The book of Joshua tells us what happened. I'm sorry, the book of Judges tells us what happened. The book of Joshua is telling, telling us as it's happening. And it's so very important, knowing this, in, this outcome, that there is a clear application from the passage because, let's be very clear, the next generation forgot. They forgot. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Faith requires a Christian to act faithfully. This is our obedient service to the King of Kings. So the Christian desires that God's will be done here on earth, then that presents us with decisions. So, so what's the choice presented by Joshua? I'm back in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. Is this... Do you think Joshua is just giving us some ambivalent choice? Okay, you can choose this, or you can choose this. I mean, 
You can choose the idols, or you can choose to worship God. Do you think that's what Joshua is actually saying in this passage? I don't. That's not at all what he's doing, but Joshua's calling the people to realize that there is no way possible to obey the perfect standard of a holy God. That's what the law does. It shows us that we are incapable. And, and keep in mind, they'd already violated God's law, right? And that's the thing. That's the, the thing that earns God, God's wrath on man. And so this is not some ambivalent, disconnected choice that you can do this or you can do that. And yet they respond over and over again. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. Throughout the passage, God repeatedly says, look at the work I did. And they keep saying, yes, we will. Yes, we will. Look at the number of eyes in the passage. Look at the number of actions on the part of the sovereign God to enable all of this. And consider the response of the people when they say we will over and over. Look at Joshua twenty four twenty one. The people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord, our God, we will serve and his voice will we obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules, statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it upon set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. This is complicated, Because the elders of Israel that are referenced that we saw in the book of Judges, they knew. They knew. They had experienced it firsthand. And and they had had the writings of Moses. So they had all the history. Um, They understand that God created. They understand that God, sovereign God, created. Sovereign God called out Abraham, the idol worshiper. Sovereign God carried out his plan. He made a promise to Abraham, land, seed, and blessing. And what an expansive promise, right? He doesn't just deliver on his promises. He exceeds our expectations when he delivers on his promises. And he did that. These elders knew that. But they didn't pass it on faithfully. And this is a real challenge. Think about it this way. I'm going to give you insight. As is always the case, when you have the opportunity to open up and study a passage in preparation for teaching... The passage teaches you far more than you could teach to others. In the time allowed, in the space allowed, there's no way to cover all that this passage could possibly tell us. But I will tell you, the encouragement to me has been, wow, I fail. I fail in this area. I fail in this area repeatedly. And I need to be intentional about the reality that I need to faithfully pass on to the next generation, right? Me and my house, as for me and my house, I need to faithfully pass on to the next generation what God has taught me. And what God has taught me is so much rooted in his sovereign means to carry out his glory. And wherever I can submit to his will, it's for my benefit. It's for my good. And it's a beautiful picture. So I just want to challenge each of us here. Think about this. If you're a parent, what a calling. If you're not, grab somebody else's kids. 
Find a way to teach the next generation what God has done in your life. Because it's a beautiful story, and it's amazing how encouraging that is. Encouraging, by the way, we're talking about courage. Encouragement, right? It comes from us coming together, opening up the Word of God, and then sharing what God has, do, has done for us, what God's doing in our lives. And then we can together be encouraged to go and do, to act faithfully what God would have us to do. And remember, we are built for worship by design. And we must actively choose to worship God. That's the third point. We are built for worship by design. Let me unpack that a little bit. We are built. We are, we, are, we are created by a designer, an intelligent designer, if you will, a sovereign designer. And he built us to worship. And we do it naturally, passively, if we're not careful. We can passively worship something, right? But we are built for worship by design, and we must actively choose to worship God. We must actively choose to worship God. What do I mean by that? I already told you I want, to, I want us to think about what it means for my house to serve the Lord. I can see in my own life oftentimes where my obedience can be passive. Uh, let me see if, see if I can explain this. I, I, can, I can follow the flow of the church schedule, engage at the right points. I can do the right things. I can say the right things, wear the right clothes. I can fit in. I can go with the flow. And there's a sense in which that, that's, that's helpful, that's beneficial, because it's a reminder. But the problem is, if I am not actively engaging my will to submit to God's will, if I am not actively opening up his word and understanding that will, and then doing what it requires, applying it in every aspect of my life, I'm just passively walking the Christian walk. I have to instead open up the Bible, look at the scriptures, understand what God would have me to do, and faithfully figure out how do I integrate that into every aspect of my life. Because everything is for what? Everything is for the glory of God. There is no activity outside that. There's nothing in the human life, nothing in the human existence that would allow me to say, oh, okay, I can let my belt out. God's not watching. God's not expecting glory in this moment, especially in the workplace. You want to talk about complicated? That's hard. That's really hard. How about in the church? Okay. Well, how about when you bring the church into your home? How about when other people's kids come into your home? Do do you try to put the show on? Do you try try to keep the act up so that your church dad? Are they going to see something different? Is there something different? Do you act differently? Is there, a, is there a door that you walk through when you leave the church on Sunday and another compartment that you walk into on Monday, homeschooling your kids, changing babies' diapers, doing laundry, doing dishes, writing software, selling? Is there a different compartment that you operate in? Is that disconnected somehow from the glory of God? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What does it mean to actively serve the Lord? It means you can't be passive. It means you can't just eh, let it be. It requires effort. It requires work to do this. And this is what we are called to do together because we don't want to look good on the outside, but on the inside be like a whitewashed tomb. So if we actively consider the principles that God shows us in the Bible, we need to integrate them fully into every aspect of our life so that every action can be in submission to the glory of God. The choice is clear when we're actively seeking after the answer. 
choose Christ or choose self. I think this is, this is my biggest idol, right? Today, these days, we don't have the little wooden idols that we put on the mantle usually, uh, not in our culture. But, but the most common idol that I, in my life that I see is, is, is self. I want to serve me. That, that's my sin nature. That, that's what comes out. And, and, and so if I'm not actively thinking about this, I get into a situation where, where if, by the way, if I'm, quick tangent, if I'm my own God, how in the world am I going to make that God happy? My mood changes. My wants change. I'm always change, following the next shiny object, right, floating around from one thing to another. Oh, this thing will make me happy. That thing will make me happy. How about cars? How about jobs? How about family? How about work? How about all these things? The next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Do you find yourself doing that? Call it what it is. You can call it materialism. That seems kind of, okay, that's neutral. That doesn't hurt so much. How about if we call it idol worship? Because that's what it is in my life. If I'm putting those things before God, I'm actually making a choice passively. I'm saying, oh, that thing's better than Jesus. That thing's better than Christ. Okay. Oh, that's scary. If, if, If I'm attributing that kind of joy, I'm expecting that thing to deliver me joy. Okay. Do you know what happens? Do you know what the result of that is? Fear anxiety, discouragement, despair. Because those idols never deliver. I never deliver on my promise as an idol. And I'm all over the place. What makes me happy today doesn't make me happy tomorrow. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What that means is actively choosing and realizing, okay, Christ is better. Christ is better. In this situation, Christ is better. God's way is better. So if he takes that thing away from me that I thought was going to deliver joy, Okay, God's way is better. He's got this. He knows. The reality is that God has, God is a great God because he's given me his instructions clearly laid out in my own language. Just let that sink in. I've said it before, and I, and I tend to repeat this. This is, this is a blessing that we have. And I, I think quite often, just, just take too lightly that here, right here, God tells us what his will is. He's gracious enough to tell us, this is my will for you. So if I'm going to become one with Christ, I need to think about what it takes to please God. What does it take to please God? What pleases God? Reformation. Christ and Christ alone. How do I become one with Christ? Faith and faith alone. And why would he do that for me? Grace and grace alone. The reformers gave us that clarity, and it's so very helpful. I work through that quite often. I'm pursuing Christ. How how do I become reconciled to God? Through Christ and Christ alone. So when I encounter various trials, James is often criticized, the impossibility of his directive. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. How do I count it all joy? How am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to take an account when it seems like things just keep going wrong? Do I just call it joy and pretend? Do I put on a happy face, fake it till you make it? Does that work? Not so much. Or I, I could put my head in the sand and just pretend that it's, it's just really not happening. And here's, here's actually another challenge. I, I want this to be heard clearly, so I might repeat it. 
does this require me, when I'm facing difficulty, when I'm facing trials, does it require me to just stay in my bedroom and read scripture and pray? Those are very important, foundational, first premise. That's what you do. But don't stop there. Don't put a period there. Read, pray, and act faithfully. God requires us to act faithfully because we are human beings built for service. Choose this day whom you will serve. When you serve the Lord, you actively serve the Lord by serving people, all the one another's of Scripture. That's why the church community is so important, so very, very important. Service is God's means of giving us courage. And throughout this book, we've seen that. I mean, a number of times that Joshua was acting in a way that was, frankly, fear-inducing. And yet God gave him clear and explicit instructions in how to act. And so if you read the examples given to us throughout the New Testament, you see that prayer and scripture reading are foundational, but they require us to do something. They require us to act. They require us to act faithfully in God's word, God's world, so that his will be done here on earth like it is in heaven. That's what we're working toward. And so a reminder of Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then, for then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. What is good success? God is glorified and we're encouraged. If, if my identity is in myself, uh, my definition of success means that I'm the one getting the glory. I'm pr- primarily concerned about my own will being done. Right? If, if, if I'm the idol, if I'm the God, it's about my glory. It's about my will being done. If my identity is actually found in Christ, I want to submit to him at every opportunity. And that's the only way for me to not be discouraged and just, frankly, flatline when, uh, when I see the challenges of life, but also when I see my own failure. I, um, if you struggle with your own failure, if it really rocks your boat, think about it. What did you expect? Be careful because you could be looking to yourself in the way that you should be looking to Christ. Um, my own personal sin is so evident oftentimes in defensiveness and argument because I really want to redefine what success look like, looks like. I, I want to redefine what, how things ought to be, how they ought to go. And instead, Scripture reminds me to accept God's definition of success, and that means he receives the glory completely independent of whether I look good or not. But man, this is a place of rest, because I can actually serve without being frozen in fear. I can open up passages like Romans chapter 8, and I can read them in a way that actually dovetails with James chapter 1. Count it all joy, brothers. And I can seek to learn from every single failure what it is that he is changing about me. I can fail forward, making even my failure an act of sanctification. He's changing me to be useful for his kingdom and helpful to his church. That is my highest use. I want to be a vessel that somehow is useful to the kingdom. And so in that context, I want to close us with Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. It's very common. You may know it by heart. Feel free to read along if you would like to, because it's a beautiful, beautiful passage. So in the context, Romans eight thirty-one, God says this. 
What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Remember, we are built for worship by design, but we must actively choose to worship God. Let's pray to that end today.